1: During this podcast, we'll discuss what's generally termed pay-for-value contracting. These are contracts where the healthcare provider shares some or all the financial risk traditionally borne by the insurer, be it uh, private pay, health insurance, or Medicare, or Medicaid. With me to discuss pay-for-value contracting is the Senior Director of Research and Development at Levitt Partners, David Molstein. Welcome, David.
0: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: Great, thank you again. David's bio is of course posted on the podcast website. And for the purposes of full disclosure, I work with an organization, the National Association of ACOs, that has a non-financial partnership with Levitt Partners. On background, increasingly commercial insurers and Medicare have been trying, have been tying, excuse me, reimbursement to annual spending benchmarks and or quality performance metrics. That is, we are moving away from fee-for-service medicine, where the payer indiscriminately reimburses a provider for services that are termed usual, customary, and reasonable. In January, the DHHS secretary announced that Medicare, by next year, will tie 30% of traditional fee-for-service Medicare payments to what are termed alternative payment models, such as bundled payments and ACOs, by 2016. And this percent will grow to fifty percent by twenty eighteen. Also in January, private payers announced the same. For example, United Health Group announced it will increase its value based payments by twenty percent or to over forty billion. The reason for this is obvious at eighteen percent of our GDP we pay far too much for health care, particularly when you consider healthcare outcomes. With me again to discuss how and to what effect insurers are moving to value based payment is again David Molstein. David, let me begin by asking you, what are the more typical payment arrangements we see under this pay-for-value contracting?
0: Sure. So I want to divide these between two different types of contracts. So some are episodic-based and some are population-based. And so episodic-based is where a provider takes financial responsibility for a defined period of time, generally for a defined diagnosis. And this is where bundled payments would fall under So under this model, the provider says, if I'm going to do a knee replacement, I'm going to accept the risk for all of the services that are going to be required, um, but I'm only going to do it for that knee replacement and then services that are related to that. On the other end of the spectrum are population-based models, where they're trying to pay providers for the total care for a population over a period of time, generally for a year, um, and they In that case, they try to say this is the total cost of that population, Um, and then they try to do different ways to evaluate whether the provider was successful in lowering the, the total cost for the population compared to what the expected cost would have been if that payment model wasn't in place. On the population side, I'll distinguish it in two different models as well. So the full risk that we've heard about in the past or really we experimented with in the 1990s was the capitated payment model, where providers were getting a per-member, per-month payment, and they were fully at risk for all of the costs of the population they were managing. The difference between this and what we're generally seeing now is the methodology in which providers are being paid, because now we are doing what we generally call a shared savings arrangement. Under a shared savings arrangement, providers are not getting paid a per-member, per-month, Instead, what they're doing is they're providing care as they typically have in the past under a fee-for-service basis, and then at the end of the year, the total cost of care based on those fee-for-service claims are aggregated, and then that total cost is compared to the benchmark or the expected cost, and we're able to then estimate whether there was an increase of, of cost or a decrease in the cost of care. Most of the new models that we're seeing, particularly on the ACO side with these population Level costs are these shared savings arrangements which are built off of this fee for service chassis. So we're still seeing a fee for service billing system that's being used, even though in the aggregate the providers are responsible for the total cost of that care.
1: Okay, thank you. The second half of this question is the quality metrics component. So how does that work?
0: Yeah, so the quality metrics, there's a number of different approaches that you have. If you're using an episodic based model, then you're generally going to have metrics that are built around what the episode is intending to do. So if it's around knee replacements, you might look at infection rates, you might look at readmissions to the hospital. You want to make sure that you're really getting those outcomes that you desire um, while still uh, managing those costs and so uh, a big part of this is the patient satisfaction with that knee replacement and so you could do that by saying what percent of these patients needed to get a, a revision done to that surgery over the the next year something to that effect on the population level payments they are a little bit different because they're really trying to identify measures that are indicative of the overall health of the population and the tricky part with these value based contracts is that you want to use measures that will both indicate that the health of the population is either being maintained or improving, but you also want to use measures that the provider has the ability to influence. And that's really the challenge where you're trying to say, we want a better health status, but we also want the provider to have the ability to influence that. So an example is smoking. If we can decrease the rate of smoking of the population, obviously it has attendant health benefits. The challenge, though, is how much control does the provider really have to decrease significantly the rate of smoking across their whole population? Generally that rate of popu- of smoking is dependent on the population that you get. There are ACOs, for example, that have less than 10% of their population, of their attributed population, that were smoking before they became part of the ACO, and at the other end of the spectrum you have ACOs that have over 70% of the population that smokes. No matter what you do as a provider, you're not going to be able to move that 70% down to the 10%, even though it may have attendant health benefits. Correct,
1: right, yeah. Uh, So, let me push you on this. So, all the major players are executing these contracts with providers, Cigna, Aetna, Wellpoint United, uh, Humana, others. So, could you give me just sort of a typical or generic example? Um, One of these payers, say, signs a contract with a multi-specialty practice group. So, they're going to give them an annual dollar amount and just walk me through it.
0: Sure. So, uh, there's a, a couple of different approaches. So, there are a handful that are doing the capitated model. In that case, they are saying, what is the per member per month that we're going to pay? And they're going to basically assign all of the risk to the provider. And that per member per month may be subject to achieving certain quality benchmarks. So let's say that it's um, an A1C measure for diabetics where you're trying to make sure your population or those that have been diagnosed with diabetes are getting their A1C levels tested and also that you're keeping them on average below a certain benchmark. So you might be getting that per member per month, but if you're not able to achieve those benchmarks on the quality side, that per member per month may be decreased slightly on the the more common side is under using this fee for service chassis and under this model, the providers are getting paid um, generally there there might be a withhold or they may be subject to repaying a certain amount at the end of the year. under the withhold model, they might withhold a certain percent of of those fee for service payments during the course of the year so maybe it's a few percent, so 3% of those payments. At the end of the year, if the provider has been able to reach those benchmarks, then that money that's been withheld is going to be paid. Um, The withhold is not the only model that they've done. They do a lot of other variations with that fee-for-service side, but it's trying to uh, make it so the provider is responsible for achieving those quality benchmarks, whatever those benchmarks they've agreed to are, while at the same time trying to accept risk for the total cost of that care.
1: Okay, so they forever use skin in the game uh, reality. What, what types of provider groups sign these contracts, and are they located in certain regions of the country uh, more than not?
0: Yeah, so... There's a wide variety of provider groups. I think when the ACO model was really envisioned, that it was thought that these would be large integrated delivery systems that have physician groups and hospitals that are already working together to some extent. And there are certainly organizations like that, and they tend to have the largest contracts because they're generally larger organizations. But ACOs um, and these providers that are moving toward these risk-based models really come from all sorts of, of different Uh, organizational backgrounds. So there are independent hospitals. There are physician groups, multi-specialty physician groups. There are small primary care focused physician groups. When we just talk about ACOs, there are ACOs that have 30 physicians and there are ACOs that have 30 hospitals that are part of the same organization. And so really it runs the whole range of the types of provider groups that are out there. That 30 physician is really, the, I would say, the smallest that you could possibly be, and it's really kind of an anomaly. I would say most of these ACOs have at least 100 physicians involved, but some of them go into the thousands as well.
1: Okay, and amongst the various stripes, are there any that are more successful than others, and what might explain that?
0: Yeah, so Broad trends are really hard to say right now because it's so organizational specific, but a few observations that we've seen is that the physician groups are in a good position to really lower the total cost of care. And the reason for that is that the largest uh, part of care in terms of total spending is the hospital admissions. So if you're trying to manage a population, if you can decrease the number of admissions, you really have the opportunity to lower the total cost of care. The challenge from the physician group side is that, and I should say their advantage really is that if they can reduce admissions, they're still going to be paid for all of their outpatient care services. And then it's the other guy, it's the hospital that's going to lose those fee-for-service payments. And so they can lower the total population cost while still getting paid uh, potentially additionally Uh, for doing additional services on the outpatient side. On the hospital side, the challenge is that if you reduce the admissions, you're reducing your fee-for-service payments, and the CFOs tend to frown upon reducing uh, volumes. So that said, we've seen some physician groups that have done really well um, as they've really focused on reducing admissions, and they've done it successfully. What we found, though, is that um, in the shorter term, hospitals are actually better positioned to implement a lot of the things that ACOs and risk-bearing providers are trying to do. And a lot of that has to do with their prior experience with managing these organizational rollouts and trying to change how care is being delivered within their facility. But it also has to do with capital. And the hospitals and hospital systems generally have more access to capital in the short term. And so that combination of having capital and having prior experience with organizational redesign or organizational management has meant that in the short term, in the first few years that they've been participating as ACOs, they've had that ability to, um, I would say, more quickly implement some of their care services. So uh, one of those things is, for example, getting those quality measures. So a big part of quality measures is just reporting them. Um, When we look at the Medicare ACO program, all of the organizations that failed to report quality measures successfully were physician-led. And this just goes to they didn't have that prior experiencing, experience with tracking and reporting the measures. Every hospital system or, or integrated delivery system that was participating in the Medicare program was able to su- successfully track those. We also saw that in the first year, the, the hospital led and the integrated delivery system led ACOs generally did better on those quality measures. But in the longer term, as the physician led ACOs really start to ramp up, figure out how to, to track and report quality and implement all of the different programs that they want to, I think they have the longer term uh, best uh, chance at lowering costs. Mm-hmm. But in the shorter term, I would say the hospitals have the head start.
1: Okay. Your point, your first point, well taken that on spending, physician costs are usually uh, one third to two thirds hospital costs, certainly in Part B and Part A, Medicare. Let me ask you, and focus more on the private side here, relative to the results to date, what have they been as as it relates to these pay-for-value contracts? Uh, Or what's your sense of the evidence that pay-for-value or risk contracting, however you want to term it, lowers costs and improves quality? Again, I realize this is somewhat early in the game, but what's the evidence or state of evidence to date?
0: Yeah, so overall, I would say that there is pretty strong evidence that it leads to an improvement in quality, um, with the caveat that the improvement is in those measures that are being focused on. If Which those may not measures, necessarily be yeah, the best
1: measures, right? Yeah.
0: Right. If those measures do really reflect broader quality, then we're seeing that year over year, the ACOs are improving on that. Um, part of it just may be that if you're being graded on something, you're going to really focus on that, and they're tests. being graded on these measures. So we are seeing that improvement of quality, and a lot of that does come through proactive care management, particularly with high-cost patients, where you say, these are these patients that have multiple chronic diseases. How are we going to effectively, proactively manage them? And it's trying to you know, do everything that you can to prevent the higher-cost, higher-acuity services. And so we are seeing some, some good examples of effective care management and lowering some of those costs of those high utilizers. On the cost side, um, there's been a wide range of results. On the Medicare side, we get the results for all of the ACOs. On the commercial side, as you can imagine, uh, people uh, are not required to report what their financial outcomes are, and so they're generally hesitant to put out a press release if they do poor financially, if they're losing money in the model. So it's a it's a non-randomized sample of results that we're getting, but we're generally seeing some positive results on the cost side as well. Um, some of those might be focused on ED use. They might be focused on readmission. So there's a wide variety of different metrics that people are tracking. And on the commercial side, they're really using all sorts of different quality metrics and and even financial metrics. But I would say that broadly speaking, we've seen good outcomes, but they've been quite modest. And so this is probably not going to to really realize in a decrease of total expenditures, but it is a decrease in the rate of growth of expenditures. But it's really not uh, what we've seen so far. There's not evidence that this is going to be kind of the magic bullet that solves America's healthcare cost troubles. It will help. It's not going to hinder, but there's more opportunity on the quality side where we're seeing more improvement on quality than we are on the cost.
1: So a lot more work to be done, certainly. You did somewhat answer this question, and that's my keys to success question, lowering hospitalizations, certainly. You did just mention the so-called super or high utilizers of care. Are there other factors that you think are critical, at least again in this early stage, that are keys to success?
0: Yeah, so the number one factor is provider buy-in. We think of this generally as physicians and getting the physicians on board, but it expands beyond that, and it's all the different providers that are delivering care to the population. And that, it's something that's easy to talk about and really hard to do. And so for hundreds of years, people have been talking about organizational management and organizational redesign, and this is an example where you have, in many cases, a uh, some providers that have been, even if they've been part of an organization, have had a lot of autonomy and have really been able to practice in their own style, in their own way, and getting people to change that and getting people to buy into this concept that they're going to be able to provide better care, they're going to be uh, better off financially, they're going to be able to uh, realize a lot of the, the ideals of practicing medicine that they aspired to when they chose to go into medicine as a profession is a challenge. And there's a lot in many of these organizations, there's a a reticence among the providers to want to change how they're practicing. So even if you have very forward thinking leadership, getting the people on the front lines to change their practice patterns and really practice as teams and, and manage populations differently is a challenge. And so getting all of the providers aligned is, I would say, the biggest key. It's more important than getting the right payment model. It's more important than getting the right HIT platform. It's getting that buy-in and then moving from there.
1: Yes, the culture and uh, the issue of uh, clinical independence. Excellent point. Right. Daunting. Very daunting. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have time for, I think, a final wrap-up question. So what do you see as the potential downsides uh, for, well, leaving aside the clinical independence issue for the provider, and certainly for the uh, patient communities in these models of care?
0: Yeah, so I'll talk, start with the provider first. So on the provider side, the biggest challenge really is, are you going to be able to transform this practice of medicine? So when we're talking about these alternative payment models or these value-based models, it's not just about passing risk. It's about using this uh, transfer of risk to the providers to encourage them to change the practice of medicine, to move from focusing on volume and episodes to focusing on longer term longitudinal management of populations. The biggest challenge is, what if you're not able to do that successfully? Most providers across the country have done pretty well under a fee-for-service environment. And if they're not able to transform how they're practicing, they have that real risk of failing financially. And we fully expect that there will be these provider groups that go out of business, that they're just not able to make that transformation. So I'd say that's one of the, the biggest challenges on the provider side. On the patient side, I would say there are generally fewer concerns, um, at least in terms of downsides. And the reason for that is this isn't really a right now a consumer-driven model. It's more a paired provider-driven model with the expectation that you're going to improve benefits For those patients, for those users of these services. And so in an ideal sense, you're not going to see significant changes in terms of what's what's being expected of the patient, what the patient is paying, how the patient is being involved. Um, All of the patient engagement things are happening independent of ACOs in addition to within ACOs. So ideally, though, the patients will see uh, additional services that are being offered to them that will help them. So for example, if you are a high cost patient, you should have a care coordinator that's assigned to you that will make sure that you're getting your prescriptions refilled, that you're getting to your next appointment, that all of these things that should be happening are really happening. Um, And also, uh, there should also be increased opportunities to engage with providers through technology. Um, So this is where if you're responsible for the population and you can treat a patient through an email and take care of their their, uh, immediate concern, why shouldn't you be doing that? And so we're seeing a lot of these ACOs saying, what are we going to be doing in these alternative models for managing them? So telemedicine and, and remote patient monitoring, and those things should also start to kind of realize over time within these, uh, within these ACOs. And so I would say more concern on the provider side, more opportunity on the patient side.
1: Okay, David, thank you. And we're uh, at our uh, time limit here, so very helpful, very interesting conversation. So thank you again for your time. It's much appreciated.
0: Yeah, happy to be on. Thanks. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.